Welcome to Help from Future Self. What's happening, Archons? Welcome to Help from Future Self, that conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. It's hosted here in Vancouver, British Columbia, but it goes out to our Keyforge pals all around the world. And I am so excited because this week we get to have a brand new guest to Help from Future Self, someone that we've never had on the show before, but that both Blake and myself have known for a long time. Let's get things started with a big introduction. You, of course, know my pal, my compadre. It's my coach. It's Boulevard Paper Fight. What's happening, Blake? Hey, guys. How's it going? And joining us for the very first time, somebody that Blake and I have both played probably a million games of Keyforge with via the Crucible. It's Philippe. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. It's really nice to be here. So exciting to have you here. Yeah, we've we've known each other for such a long time, and and we're teammates, and we also have been playing on the, the coat uh, tournaments together. Um, you probably know know him on the Crucible as J. Philippe G. And uh, you, if you have not seen that black and white face icon, this this beautiful man with a full beard, you, you <laughs> probably know who we're talking about now. Spend some a lot of my time uh, on TCO, just jamming game. Good way to spend time. And yeah. certainly a way where you get to have an experience that shows you all of Keyforge from the beginning until now. Um, one of the things that uh, is great about having you on the show is that our topic today is really going to touch on something that has changed and evolved from Call of the Archons through to right now, the eve of mass mutation, when in just a few short weeks, we're going to have a brand new set, the fourth Keyforge set. We're going to get a real taste of what the future of the game is going to look like. And it's super exciting to have you here to discuss a little something we like to call Amber Control and a little something we like to call Board Control. But before we get there... Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with the game? When did you pick it up? So I, I picked it up really early. Uh, one time at the office at lunchtime, uh, I, I just noticed one of my coworkers, a, a really dear friend of mine, Joao, uh, that he was playing some, some card game on, on, on his computer. And I, I started to ask, to asking him about the game. Uh, he told me about Richard Garfield, which I knew from, from Magic the Gathering, what, that I played for a couple of years in the 90s, what, the late 90s. He just told me that the game was really new. This was December 2018, so the game was brand new, and told me about the unique decks, that he was really liking the game. So I, I got interested. I, I went home, started to, to look for it. I... I watched some Team Confident uh, videos and just got hooked. I, I, it really sounded uh, a nice game and I started to play. I, I bought my first deck on January 5th or 6th and never stopped playing on DCO. It sounds like a lot of people's journey into Keyforge. I got to ask, just because I know you've played so many games of Keyforge, how many decks roughly do you have in your collection? <laughs> About 300. <laughs> you don't have to be embarrassed with me and Blake. We're both we're both down that rabbit hole. We're we're here yeah. to support each other, not judge each other. <laughs> 
but uh, uh, it's great to, to to that you have sort of that big pool of decks that you've played that you've played against people like myself and Blake that you've played so much online because I think it really gives you a sort of a solid perspective on what works, what doesn't work, and how the game has evolved. And I believe it was you who suggested talking about sort of the evolution of board control and the evolution of amber control. So uh, just overall, what are your sort of thoughts on the state of amber control and board control right at this moment? What are we looking at in terms of the way that those things work in Keyforge at this time? Yeah, so uh, when I when we all, both, uh, all started, I think that... Uh, the way to win uh, Keyforge games was uh, much centered in great Amber Control or great Amber Rush, or both. If you had both, you were <laughs> you were re- uh, really on the on the good path to to win a lot of games. And of course, there were some some other strategies, you know, the con- three control the weak decks and stuff like that. But um, you. You were you ended up really needing to to have uh, big amber control cards, and uh, I think right now we you can win a lot of games without that. And uh, since since uh, mostly worlds collide, I noticed that uh, when I started to play against world collide decks, I didn't have the the early access to Worlds Collide. So mm-hmm. when I started to play them on TCO or against them, uh, I would just be crushed because of the all the warding, all the Starlines shenanigans, all the the soaring big boards, the the, the multiple uh, Eddie's decks that would just uh, change the game in a different way that uh, the go to meta would do so uh, I really noticed that I needed to think about uh, the board control cards that you have on your deck like mm-hmm. sometimes I, I noticed that well if, if their entire board is is warded maybe I, I only need to to keep my gateway and uh, find my my second gateway or find my my tendrils of pain, which would strip all the wards and then I would be able to to remove the board. So uh, that's when I started to realize that Keyforge was changing a lot. Yes, that's that's something I noticed too. It's it's this evolution we've seen in Coda where everything was was to a degree quite straightforward in that you just play cards and the objective you're looking to achieve pretty much happens. Like you were just stealing, play a card, you steal the ember, you get it. And as the game has progressed, we're getting almost more intricate with the way that you're controlling ember. It's not just playing a card. There's there's levels to it that create this, this more uh, complex thoughts and processes to the game. That's really interesting because I think we've all noticed that at the beginning, it was Amber Control was almost exclusively defined by how well your deck could steal, and since then we've seen this evolution to almost shifting from not steal being the main component of Ember Control, but it seems this key cost increase. So not only 
taking people off check potentially, but you're actually making them inefficiently forge keys as part of it. So that number of getting to 18 now has increased because you can't just create 18 ember because you're going to sometimes be forging a key for 9, 11. You, you don't even know what the number could be. And so we've just seen this evolution. And I think uh, there was, a, you know, little bits of that key cost aspect existing in Coda. There was very small amounts. And then we saw big jumps when uh, the AOA meta came out because of, I mean, Proclamation 346E and, of course, Grump Buggy creating that suddenly really high increase in key costs. So it's just this interesting evolution where you can't just play cards in order to take people off check. There's, there's more levels to it. Philippe, you brought up a point that I think is super interesting, is that the two concepts are now intrinsically related in Keyforge because so much, um, you know, just as you were talking about getting sort of destroyed by those early decks in the uh, the, the meta for uh, Worlds Collide, so much of what Amber Control is now isn't taking away Amber. It's just raising key cost or capturing Amber. So the idea now is that you have to have a way to deal with the creatures that do those things, which is where board clears come in. So where they were sort of not super dependent on one another in a lot of ways, I feel like now if you're running a deck that has a ton of key cost increase capture and stuff like that, if you're running a big Saurian lineup, you're totally looking at your opponent's deck list going, what does he have for clears? Is this guy packing a key to disc? Does he have some mm-hmm. a red alert? Anything else that can take me uh, take out all my ways of controlling his amber? Whereas you're doing the exact opposite. If you uh, look across the table and you see that stuff, you're like, man, I got to dig for my board clear. I got to have it right there when I need it. Those two concepts are now totally baked in together. Yeah. And uh, another another thing that I've noticed a lot is that uh, during Call of the Archons, you had uh, the most important cards were almost always actions like bait and switch, uh, library access, too much to protect our step, arise gateway. And uh, some of the times those were the cards that you needed to to work with your deck, but they were essential. But uh, right now, and, and you had a couple of creatures and uh, artifacts that you that that had that same role like hunting witch or witch of the eye or restoring dancers but uh they were they were uh there are not a lot of those creatures and right now uh if you have starlines deck with a lot of really small creatures that every time they do something they they will trigger a really good ability uh mm-hmm. you You've changed the number of a couple of uh, key creatures to uh, almost every creature in your deck is is key and it's and it's helping you just advancing your win conditions. So if like like you said, if you don't have a, a board wipe or a board control card at the right moment, most of the times you're you're in a hard place to to win the game. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that back in the day, what we used to say, back in the day, like a year and a half ago, <laughs> because the game is still quite young by the standards of many, many games, uh, what we used to say was if the deck doesn't have amber control, it's not playable in a competitive setting. It might be fun. It might be a good one-off. It might be just fun for, for tradesies or something like that, but it's just not playable if you're serious about winning. And now I feel like we've had to extend that to board control as well. Like, genuinely feel... We were playing with uh, the Wheeling Keyforger Rick the other day with his hot new lineup that he's got going on in one of his decks. And every deck I tried out against it, um, because it had such a robust lineup of creatures with such great powers, just the stuff you were talking about, Philippe, those Saurian lineups, those Star Alliance lineups with all those great powers and all the great things that it gets you to have them... Um, it, it was just one of those things where I kept thinking, where's my board wipe? I just need that board wipe so badly or else I'm going to get completely skunked in this game. They're going to run away with it and I can't afford to wait till it comes up. I got to find it. They're both kind of equally important at this point, which is honestly not something I saw coming in the evolution of the game. Blake, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, okay. So the one thing I'm I'm really loving about Keyforge right now is each set has has drastically shifted the way that you played the game before and the most interesting part i think of keyforge's discovery like we all we all know this and each set you have this interesting discovery where you get a new deck from a new set and you start playing it with your mentality you know of of what you knew before and it takes like a month or two to really understand that you've been playing a deck the wrong way potentially or not seeing this new line of thinking that exists and that's just kind of what's occurred over time. And we're seeing it more and more. And, and like you said, with a new set on the horizon, I think we're going to see this even more because I don't know about you guys, but I feel mass mutation is truly an amalgamation of everything that has come before and the best parts of it all combined into one set. So this whole thought we've had and we've been discussing, I think is actually going to be changing and things that we've been doing before and kind of been taking for granted are going to start coming back in a way. I don't know if that really answers what you're saying, but this is something I've been kind of just thinking about as we've been talking about this and, and thinking, mulling over all the the cards that we have and the lines of play that we take when it comes to especially the board wipe side of things and the stealing and ember control stuff. So what do you guys think about that? Yeah, about, about the way that we used to think, uh, I I actually have a, a deck that I like to to play around uh, on TCO uh, recently, where the only real Ember control that you have is one Eddy. And if I used to, if I look at the deck how I used to, like okay, this it can it can control the board, but if I only can control uh, my only Ember control source is is one Eddy, uh, how how can I win? And uh, what that deck does is you don't need to rush, but you have a lot of archiving uh, mechanics like memory shit. And you just need to archive all your untamed and uh, just try to use your board so in the end you can play an Eddie and protect him with some taunts and uh, Primal Sangis and just win without letting your opponent to to forge the third or the second key. So mm-hmm. I used to look at only one number control cards and now I can look at, okay, so I, I just need to keep my board safe 
archive all uh, all the cards from this house and just wait till I can safely play an edit and don't don't uh, enable him to to win. So these are these are the ways that uh, even when I looked into the to the spoilers when we were waiting for uh, World Skylight, I thought that Eddie could be a really good card, but I wasn't thinking that one Eddie could uh, be the centerpiece of, of a deck and just uh, be able to win some games uh, with, with just one member control card. Because, like like I said, I was used to uh, Call of the Archons and Age of Ascension uh, meta where you really need some some ember control most of the time, mm-hmm. and it's really it's it's really different right now. It totally is different. And to speak to both of the things that you were just talking about, Blake, you know, your your sort of point on how mass mutation is going to blow open the way that we approach both these concepts, it, it very much is in line with what uh, Philippe was just talking about, which is that every time a new set has come out, we've had to adjust our thinking around what those concepts mean and how they're achieved. I love what you were just saying, Philippe, because it really does to me point out the fact that not only has the game changed, but our thinking about the game has changed. And that's sort of an aspect of the maturity of Keyforge. Mm -hmm. Um, They haven't stayed in one place when it comes to gameplay, and they've evolved new ways of thinking about the game because in order to play games where, let's face it, if you want to win or at the very least you want to not get blown out every game, you have to start changing the way you approach it. You see what's effective for your opponents. You see what's effective in your decks. You see the way that cards have changed their meaning and how old cards suddenly have new value because of the things they did that didn't used to be value are now incredibly value or how cards that were already valuable are now incredibly valuable going back and looking at some of those old school board clears like we're talking about things like gateway to disc an absolutely stellar card that had you know a drawback of three chains but absolutely worth it in today's meta just because of what it can do for you and the fact that it doesn't end your turn or cripple you to play it. You could play at the beginning of your turn and then continue to do stuff. So really interesting stuff. I wanted to pose a a sort of a question to both of you, which is as we see sort of Amber control and board control continue to evolve with each new set, do you feel like there's a point where we're going to settle into a groove or do you think that there's still opportunities for gameplay to evolve further with those concepts? Are there other drawbacks or sort of, you know, tit for tat kind of card play that we're going to see going forward that is going to change the way we think about those concepts? I I think there's, there's always room to, to explore those, the evolution of Ember control and board control. Like I, I see that uh, there are already cards that would punish you if you if you control my board in, in such a way that you have a lot of creatures and I don't have any, like Glorious Few or uh, Red Alert. So uh, I think that there's there's uh, a lot of room to to evolve. Like we had a lot of creature based Ember control. We can have a lot of creature-based uh, board control and hand control, maybe uh, back control and discard pile control. 
which we started to, to have a lot on what's collide. So I think the game has a lot of room to evolve and to change. And, and I feel, uh, I, I really think that uh, it will change a lot <laughs> in the future. I completely agree with Philippe. I mean, we already have the fact that they created this world called the Crucible and in it are just, you know, an almost unlimited amount of different species and and groups that are consisting of, you know, different areas of the whole universe. And that basically gives them this opportunity to just create a new house. Like we saw that happen now and we know it's going to happen in the future. So no matter what happens, they have this way of just creating essentially a new civilization that exists on the crucible that could suddenly just be there and have this answer, this maybe this new mechanic is being developed. So I think that they created a world that has this sort of infinite possibilities uh, idea behind it means that there's always going to be the ability for the creators of the game to have an answer maybe in the form of a whole new house. And I think that's what makes Keyforge so exciting because, I mean, the hype of Worlds Collide that came, when it came out was a fact that we were seeing two new houses that none of us had ever experienced before. We'd only seen flavor text in terms of the mention of certain cards that would appear. So they did a very smart move by developing this world where they have kind of unlimited resources to draw upon in order to create something new and exciting and to answer these concepts of board control and ember control. You both raise great, great points. And I think one of the things that's most distinctive about mass mutation is that we're not seeing a brand new house. We're seeing the return of Sanctum. But what we are seeing is an evolution in identity for Sanctum as they return to the game that's based not on a broad concept like, say, Amber Control or Board Control. What we are seeing is they are now the anti-mutant house. And mutant is a trait-based thing, which we've seen little hints of here and there. In the previous sets, you had a couple of cards that would interact with traits in one way or another. But now we're actually seeing it become a major part of gameplay. And I dare say that I think a lot of the ways that mass mutation is going to be unique is that the traits are going to factor into things like amber control and board control. Somebody's got a mutant deck that's running rampant on you. You have to have something that takes care of just mutants. Mm -hmm. Somebody's got, you know, sort of a way for mutants to capture Amber. Once again, you've got to have that mutant dealing with factor. Maybe you're packing Sanctum. Maybe you're packing something in another house that'll deal with it. But I really think that that's interesting as an evolution to the game because we've never seen them really emphasize a trait in the way that they seem to be doing with mass mutation. And that to me is interesting because it speaks to the point that you're both making. There's endless room for this game to grow and they're exploring with each new set a way in which that can happen. Yeah, that's true. And uh, about the, the the traits hate cards, it's it's a little bit a way to make decks that probably will be very strong against the same same set if if the set has a lot of those trait cards, and probably it will have to play different against other sets uh, other sets decks. So. Uh, I think that Keyforge, the the thing I like most about Keyforge is you cannot, you don't have a deck that uh, wins against against everything. So mm -hmm. your deck, your deck might be really good against my deck, but you're going to play another person that I won against, and you're going to be 
you're going to lose because your deck is it's really bad against the other person's deck. So that's that uh, rock paper scissors factor. You know, I, I think that Keyforge really accomplishes that. Uh, of course, there are decks that are better than the others, but if you have a, a bunch of really good decks, you will you will see that uh, that factor uh, coming in, and that's really interesting. One hundred percent agreed. Whew. This has been really excellent. I've loved having you here, Philippe. But we got one more thing that you're going to contribute to this podcast before we get out of here. It's a little segment we like to call Help from Future Self. It's a lesson that somebody has learned through Keyforge, maybe in a recent game, maybe over the course of many games that they want to impart to our listeners. Philippe, you're the guest. Do you have one for us this week? Yeah, I do. Uh, So, uh, like you guys said, I've really been playing on TCO. For, for almost from the beginning of the game and a lot. And as, as we start to envision a time where we can finally play uh, in real life again and organize tournaments, and I hope that time will come soon, I, I would like to share an experience that I had when I played my, my first and only Prime Championship uh, in Bristol, UK. So uh, I've... Probably I'm. I I wouldn't I, I would be lying if I said that I was one of the players that have more experience playing online, because we used to have a, a tool that was called uh, Crucible Tracker, where every game you played would be record there. So I I I, I know I I played a lot of Keyforge, but the first time I I went to play a. A real life event. I really felt overwhelmed when I when I needed to count every card, mm-hmm. be aware of every trigger, having to check the game state, checking if what my opponent was playing was valid. Because you don't need to worry about that on TCO. If, if something is wrong, it's almost always a, a known bug, or it's so obvious that both players will will just uh, fix it. So. I remember that the first game that I played on that tournament, it looked like it took two minutes, and I wasn't able to to play it. You know, I was I was just trying to to figure out how to play this game in real life. So I would say that teach yourself is before returning to real life play, try to to play it in real life with your friends a lot and try to through Skype or, or uh, start to, to hang out with some, some closer friends so you can play and to warm up yourself and be able to perform as you, as you expect instead of being rusty all the time. So I would say that that's my, my advice for everyone. An important lesson to keep in mind as we are now still in the COVID era, still having to play most of our games online with the possibility that we might in some limited capacity get to play live and in person in future. Keep in mind the way that the game is different online from in real life. Philippe, thank you so much for joining us on the show. You can, of course, find Help From Future Self on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. You can find me at Scuzzy Gruen on The Crucible, on Instagram, and on Twitter. Where can they find you, Blake? You can find me on 
Twitter and Instagram at Boulevard Paper Fight. That's BLVD Paper Fight, as well as on my YouTube channel where I just put out the first game from my new series of Deck Quest, where I'm taking this one deck on a quest with me and I'm going to be talking about it post game as well as uh, having the game itself uh, commentated on. So it's kind of a new thing that I'm trying out on my YouTube. So uh, please go check that out. I hope you will enjoy this series. And where can folks find you online, Philippe? So you can find me on Twitter at jphilippeg and on Discord also jphilippeg. And on TCO, if, you, if you're playing, you probably have seen me at, at <laughs> jphilippeg. So <laughs> that's where you can find me. And thank you guys for, for the invitation. It was a pleasure to be here with you. The only question now is when's the next time we're going to have you on? Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to get to hang out and chat with somebody who's had the same kinds of experiences we've had, but has a different perspective. It really, really does help enrich this podcast. So we're very thankful to have you here speaking for myself and Blake. We got to get out of here. Until next time, thanks for listening. Stay fortunate.